Welcome to Rooster Radio. I'm Andrew Montesi here with James Begley, and it's a massive, massive episode for Rooster Radio uh, for a number of reasons. But uh, firstly, we've got a new microphone, so we're not just uh, going off the one mic. Um, and you would have heard our amazing opener, which is, yeah, pretty stunning. I, I got that done for 40 bucks by some bloke in Canada, found him on a website called Fiverr, and uh, he's done a closer as well. So hang in there for this closer, because he says my company wrong, and he says my name wrong. But uh, yeah, we'll just see how we go and deal with it. How are you, James? Good. Apart, apart from your company name and your, you know, your name, most of it's pretty spot on. Yeah, I reckon it's great. No, I'm going well. I'm excited about what we've got in store for us today. And it just seems that the, the big names, um, you know, since Josh Baker, really, the big yeah. names have just steamrolled in. Not, we haven't even asked them to be on the I've show. I've been inundated with requests. Yeah, like, emails. I'm, I'm flicking, and, I'm flicking fact, through this list of guests that I've got coming Dom, Dom was fortunate enough to be the lucky uh, recipient of a spot on Rooster Radio <laughs> this week. So I'm going to introduce Dom Cassisi. Uh, Dom was born in Western Australia, in Perth. Uh, he was drafted to the Port Adelaide Footy Club. Uh, I'm assuming the end of 2001 for the start of the 2002 season, Dom's that? No, 2000 for 2000. 2000, there you go. So where he played for an incredible 14 years then. Um, in AFL terms, 14 years is an eon. That is a long time. 14 pre-seasons. Yeah, makes me um, feel sick. Dom was made captain for four years. Uh, the Port Adelaide Footy Club in 2009 through to 2012. Some of the highlights, Premiership in 2004, Don was uh, four times best and fairest, uh, Foss William medalist, and um, in, in terms of uh, AFL and, um, you know, sport, elite sport, to play 270... 228. 228. Well, there you go. I'll give you extra 50. I'll give you 50. Um, that was my... Re- Actually, that's producer Delmont's problem. Yeah, yeah. Blame, blame Del. Producer yeah. Delmont's research is poor. Um, uh, Dom transitioned out of footy and he's currently uh, managing director. In fact, I'm assuming you started up from absolute scratch uh, a business called Funding Options. Uh, Funding Options is a one-stop shop for anyone requiring home loans, investment loans, refinancing, business and commercial and vehicle financing. Dom is married to the beautiful Adelaide girl, Maya, and has three gorgeous kids, Eva, Rose, and Clementine. Dom, welcome. One of the things that we like to ask all our guests when they first start is, we are in a salubrious office here. Of, of our features, which of the you know, aspects of this office stands out the most? What, what actually is it about the office that you like? Without a shadow of a doubt, it'd have to be it's not every day you do an interview where someone's got a microphone similar to John Law's. <laughs> it's not gold. Gold. It's golden, though. It's not gold. It's gold. It's it's, what is it? Okay, it's no. But that one there, that, that new one that you're talking We've, about in the intro, yeah. there's, a, there's a tad, there's a bit of a goldy colour in there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, and also to paint a picture, I've got my chinos and T-shirt on, and, and Dom walked in in a sort of svelte blue suit, oh, oh, oh. and he's it's got a massive sort of got a Macedonian uh, swarthy beard, and he, and he looks the part. So don't know. Once again, Dom, welcome. Now, thanks for having me, guys. It's an honour to be here. We're going to look at your football, uh, I guess, experience. We're going to look at the transition from football into the real world, and then we're also going to look at some of your business stuff. So I might kick off by. Just posing a question to you about footy, and that is, what is, 
like what was one aspect that was a real low light in your career where where you know this stuff you've gone straight to the heavy stuff i know so well there's no sort of soft sort of our stats have shown that everyone switches <laughs> off after four minutes so i've got to get a hard question up right but in all seriousness what, what part of your career was bloody hard um yeah there's a real uh i guess defining hard moment when it was um and it pales into into insignificance like any type of injury or anything like that but it was the end of 2012 season where we the club was on our knees um we didn't have a coach appointed at that particular time the board had just sort of left there's a new board going to come in um keith thomas had been there long we had no president because brett duncanson had just left and was in between koshi coming so the club at that particular time there was just like not a lot of direction around and um, unfortunately, in that off-season, um, we lost one of our teammates in Las Vegas, um, John McCarthy. So that, um, and I was captain of the club at the time, and getting the phone call um, from Keith saying that you know one of the boys had lost their life in Las Vegas was, you know, I just get sort of goosebumps now talking about it. But yeah, that is, I guess it's, you say within footy, what was the hardest moment? It's beyond that, you know. Yeah, so that was a real um, tough point for the whole club, but especially being, I guess, the leader of, of the playing group at that particular time as well. What was the sequence of events once that phone, once you took that phone call? Yeah, look, so it was, um, in, like I said, in the off-season, so I raced straight into the club um, where everyone was just in shock and disbelief and um, I guess the players in, a lot, you know what it's like in the off-season, guys go overseas or go back to their home state. So the guys that were in SA, we, we got to the club pretty quickly and um, <clears throat> sort of got briefed on... on sort of were, were there tears? Oh, yeah. Mate, it was unbelievable. It was just, yeah, everyone... It was, it was initially like a big state of shock. And then from there we went to... Uh, the club was just like, we all just need to stay together. So we went to Jay Schultz's house and he hosted us there at his house. All the players that were in SA at that time, partners... Um, for a few days and we had councillors coming in and that sort of stuff and we're just being around each other. As the leader though, how did, I'm interested to know, how did you juggle your personal needs to grieve and and sort of start processing what was happening versus actually having to support the boys? Well that's what, everyone was just became in supportive mode, like no one was really worrying about themselves, whether you're the captain or the youngest guy on the list, so that was sort of um, a bit of a... Anything, but yeah, I was just more trying to stay in contact because there was nine other guys in Vegas at that time, and they were doing it incredibly hard because they sort of felt that maybe is you know they were they were asking themselves, I think, you no, know, is there anything I could have done to maybe prevent this? So they had all that going through their head, and they were wanting to get back to Australia as quickly as they could. So I was sort of communicating with those guys a fair bit. Um, not that you can say much, but just more support, but. Then um, when those guys landed back into Australia, into Adelaide, um, then yeah, that was at our house, Minor Mayors, and we had, I think we probably had 120 people in the house. It was every player and their partner, their families, all from interstate. And it was just a day of just spending time together and there was counsellors and all sort of stuff. But it was a really important thing to do when the guys got back from the US to get everyone together because it got them feeling belong, you know, the sense of belonging to the group again. You know, if they'd just landed in from Vegas into Adelaide and just gone to their own home and deal with it that way is a lot harder than the group environment. And that's the one of the most special things around sporting teams and footy clubs is that in hard moments like that, you've got 
40 people would agree with and get through it. Whereas in other workplaces, quite often if you go through something quite tragic like that, you, you deal with it yourself. And obvious parallels, hideous parallels really to what the Adelaide Footy Club experienced and, and you had connections to Walsh. Have you, have you spoken to any of the Adelaide guys about yeah. their experiences and, and, and how they got through? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I think I remember, I remember speaking to Rue, Mark Rusciuto, quite you know, because there's a Triple M connection, um, and I spoke to Nathan Van Burlow, who I know, and just sort of ran, just I guess bounced ideas. I, I see him a bit, and I just said, mate, this is how we dealt with J Mac um, situation, and um, it was just about sticking time, spending spending time together, just so, you know, all, all that sort of thing, and. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was another tough one because I was obviously really close with Walshie as well and know Meredith and the family really well as well. So, But but in regards to the, I guess, while I was in the footy, in my football career, that was the toughest one, yeah. How do you reflect on those times uh, because footy is deemed to be so important? Was it almost a special time because it put in perspective that you play a game, you play a sport? And, you know, do you remember that sort of aspect of it? Yeah, definitely. Um, It's it sort of, um, yeah, I mean, like anyone that goes through st something like that, you, you do um, you do appreciate the simple things more. Um, and I guess for not only me, but the playing group, it made us realise like how lucky we are to do what we do. And I've got no doubt that that's what really propelled the club and the playing group to play better footy that next year to go, you know, and Kenny came in and implemented some good stuff, but the unity of the group, the level of trust and love amongst the group, we all just wanted to play for each other and protect each other after that. And that showed out in the footy field and all of a sudden we went from being 14th to beating better teams week after week. Um, and it was all because we were prepared to go and protect each other and, and look after each other. And um, it was all on the back of, of that. It made us realise that, um, we, we, the gift of life, you know, and being able to do something you love, you can't take for granted. How do you think you changed as a leader and a person sort of through that period and then beyond, maybe even to who you are now? Um, I don't know, I think maybe one of the biggest things I learned as a leader through that was that quite often as a leader, um, you think it'd be the most vocal and the loudest and that sort of thing, whereas that experience there the leadership was totally the opposite. It was about just not being in front of everyone's face and talking and ranting. It's just more silence, um, more individual one-on-one -on -one type stuff. Um, and strong leadership is not always about talking all the time. Just beginning to move beyond those you know, horrible incidents, but you, you walk out of a career with probably three or four guys, you, you mentioned brothers, brotherhood. Um, who are the guys that you are most connected with now and you still speak to regularly? Uh, not asking for you know, your short list of best friends, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah who, are the, who are the people that you're, you're closest with um, after finishing? Yeah, um, I've got um, Kane Corns, who we're, we're almost um, totally different type of people. Like he's, um, well, not totally different. There's a lot of similarities, but a lot of differences at the same time. But we both came into the system together at the age of 18. Um, and so we went through the whole journey together and, and um, we, we just, we, we clicked and, and um, it's, all, it's, a bit, it's 
It's a bit of a. I heard around the traps he was a bit of a footy nerd for the first few years of uh, Kane. Oh, yeah, and he was just fully intense, but I was a bit more relaxed. So it was almost like the yin and yang. Like, yeah. I'd look at him and go, mate, you're way over the top. And he'd probably look at me and go, mate, you're, like, like, you're not lazy, but you, you're too chilled out. Yeah. And so it worked really well. Like, he drove, what he, me seeing him, how hard he worked, I, no doubt made me work harder. And then I think at times when he was way over the top and me saying to him, mate, just chill out a bit, like, worked well for him. So it was like a really good friendship and... Um, and so, yeah, Kane, but then there's, yeah, like, um, you know, I, I don't speak to him as much now being out of the game, but I had a really, um, I, I think I had a strong bond with Bokey as well, being a young leader at the time, and I love everything he's about. Like, he's just a great person. Um, and there's some of the other guys, like Tommy Logan and Paul Stewart and and, um, and those guys I'm really close with still, yeah. What about some of the guys when you first came to the club that really got around you, um, who were those guys and what did they sort of teach you early on? Yeah, um, I'll never, you never forget your first day, really, as you know, or like any job, really. You never forget your first day, but going in that environment. Um, and back then, 15 years ago, footy was the old, don't talk unless you've played 100 games. That's it. You don't exist until you... You don't exist. Play. Like, you pick up the markers, pick up the cones, like, grab, grab the boots, like, grab the other players' boots, don't get, you know, get changed somewhere else. So it was like really different then. But for Brent Montgomery, who was one of the older players at that time, on my first day to come up and say, mate, like introduced himself and said, and said, mate, look, if there's anything I can help you with, don't be afraid to ask. And that's all it was. And I just thought, what the, I just, I don't know, it was just a real um, appreciative thing that, I, that I'm great. You know, it just made me feel relaxed day one. And, um, you know, whereas that today, a young player coming in from the draft... You know, like their family have flown over when they first land in the state. Um, the players greet them at the airport. They stay with the player for a bit. It's, it's a lot more different. And, the, and, and young players are encouraged to speak up from day one, whereas back then it was just... i never forget. I was completely underwhelmed by my first day. Uh, I flew in the night before our first training at St Kilda in 1999. And I was expecting certain standards, and I think that they were a bit high. But nevertheless, I've walked in and we were at Sandringham Oval. It was this cold Melbourne day. It was sort of raining sideways. And I've walked into the change rooms and all the boys are there strapping themselves for a pre-season session, like sitting on benches, sort of lying on um, couches. Um, I I was actually let down. And and it was really weird because I I thought that I would be shocked with the professionalism. And in the end, I was was really underwhelmed. And it's funny, you don't often talk about those stories because everyone wants to know how professional I was. It was a massive jump up. But... You know, that's why I'm just interested in, in those yeah. anecdotes where you don't sort of share them that often. Yeah. But they're very true. And for me, I was underwhelmed. Mm. You're talking about that sort of... When you started, that was probably the semi-professionalism yeah. era. On that, was there, was there any discussions then about life after footy? You know, you, know, you, uh, you know, did they get the guys... Did they get the guys planning for retirement and thinking about the next job? I mean... Was that sort of drilled into you early on, or did that sort of come later as yeah. the AFL became more professional? Well, it definitely came later um, because the AFL Players Association back then were probably in the infancy stages of setting up any sort of education programs and grants and that sort of stuff. So, so just for everyone out there, I mean, just explain how those grants worked. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, if you're in the AFL system now, 
Um, if you want to study whatever you want, whether at uni, TAFE, whatever, a lot of it's subsidised by the AFL Players Association. Um, and you've got careers, advisors, counsellors at your fingertips that can help navigate through what you want to do post-footy. Um, they set up work placement. So if you have studied something and um, or you're looking to go into it and you're passionate about it, they can set you up with some one-day-a-week employment to get a taste of it and you can get paid a little bit extra for that. And It's like a quite a holistic approach now, but back then it was just get drafted, rock up, train, and off you go. Um, but, you know, to the AFL Players Association, Association's credit, it, it sort of got momentum quite quickly. In the last sort of probably eight years, the Players Association have had some great offerings for the players. But you've got to go and look for it. Like, the offerings are there, but as a player during your career, you've actually got to go and get on the front foot and seek that help and, and get things going because they... Or, you know. I'm, a, I'm a massive believer and it really shits me when people say that, that the AFL and the AFLPA doesn't provide enough for the players and that they might come out of the system with nothing. I reckon you're a peanut. If you come out of a system, uh, being in a system five, six plus years, if you come out of there with nothing, yeah. it's because you're a peanut. I, there's so many doors get opened up and, and like you said, if you're proactive and actually just open yeah. up one of those doors yeah. and we're going to find out how you sort of began your sort mm. of transition into, into post-footy life. But, I mean, I'm not sure what your thoughts are because it really shits me. Yeah, oh, it's just, it's, yeah, there's, um, there's so much help there if you want it and assistance. So the AFL Play Association is one thing. So as a player, you know, if you have identified something you want, to be able to study it if you're committed to it, that, that can happen. But then, if it is, say, construction, you're, in, you're excited about construction, that's what you want to do. I guarantee you there is someone really prominent that sponsors the footy club that's in construction, that if you went and sat down with them coffee and said, mate, I'm actually interested in what you're doing, I'm studying it, or I have studied it, can you help me out? These sponsors and that, the reason why they want to sponsor, I reckon a lot of times, is to get to know the players a bit. They will open up their doors. And then you all of a sudden you know where it can lead. You might they might invite you to be in their business as a part owner or something. You know you just don't know, but it's all there. It's all G- there. Generally, do you think the players are proactive enough? I mean, just from your experience within the footy club, do you think enough of the boys are actually you know getting on the front well, front foot? No, there's probably not. No, definitely not. And I think we all have, and I was guilty of it to a certain extent too. But you always think, oh, I'll be right. Mm. You know, like if I'm in the game long enough, someone will knock on the door and offer me a job cold hard facts and I tell the boys now is that if I didn't have the business set up four years prior um, funding options like I got I didn't get one phone call I got a phone, couple of phone calls to play footy in the hills you know <laughs> but I've got a family I've got three kids and all that sort of stuff yeah. like no one comes and goes oh mate here's a job here's such and such money you've got no experience in that but just come and work with me anyway it does not happen so on that when did you start thinking about your transition? When did you start thinking about what you wanted to do post-footy and what that would look like? Um, oh, it would be about, I don't know, I was always on edge for some reason throughout my whole career. Like, Because it didn't take me, it took me a year and a half to play my first game. So I actually thought I was going to get delisted after my first contract. So I was just, from that moment, it was probably a blessing in disguise. Because yeah. I just felt on edge for my whole career. Even when I was getting picked each week, I was like, this could end tomorrow. I don't know, I had so you played two hundred and twenty odd games, and yeah, and you're constantly thinking that that this could be it. Yeah, always for some reason, I just never felt secure in that 
environment and jobs. So I was always like quite anxious about what happens after. So the way I fed, um, tamed the anxiety was to actually do something about it. And, and um, like, like I said, so I met with a sponsor of the club who's got a great finance breaking firm. So I was interested in property and finance and stuff. Sat down and said, mate, how do I get in this industry? He goes, you've got to study this, this and this. So I went and studied it, went back to him and was talking to him along the way. And he goes, why don't you come and do a one day a week? I said, okay, no worries. So we did a one day a week and learnt the ropes and stuff. And um, yeah, then the opportunity rose, came up to start up a business. So what year was that when you actually went to him and had a coffee? Oh, it would have been 2008. 2008. So that's four years before you, four and a half years before you finished playing footy. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. actively making, um, yeah. putting things in place to, yeah. to make it happen. Yeah. And aside from potentially him, were there other mentors or people that used to bounce ideas off or in, in the business landscape before that? Um, a little bit. I mean, I met some, I don't know, not really prior to that because, you know, like, so 2008, I don't even know how old I would have been, 26 maybe. I think prior to, I mean, Monty, you're young, really young. But most other people I don't think are in that headspace until you're maybe in your late 20s or even mid-30s. So, but yeah, when I got to that age, I was like, I need to get, start, start, you know, um, meeting some people, working out what I want to do. So you finished, you played your last game. You've told everyone that you're going to retire or did you make the decision post your last game? No, no, no. I um, yeah, no. Come up, yeah. So spoke to Kenny. Said it's enough. I've had I can't go on anymore. Yeah. Can't play at the level. Too old. Too slow. <laughs> um, and we had the played the last game, and then that was it. And then just talk me through the next period of time. Did you did you have a break? Did you wake up the next Monday, put a suit on, and go right? I'm like, so where were you at that point in the in the lifespan of funding options? Yeah. yeah so at that particular point, I had I took a month off. Um, but within the first two weeks of my last game, if that makes sense, so the first two weeks of my last game, I, was, I used that two weeks to work out whether I was going to go into funding options full-time and make that my life or um, pursue a career within footy and within the footy club because there was an opportunity there. Um, and why did you pick funding options? I just had a really good gut feeling about it and I was just really passionate about doing something else. And I, I as much as I love footy, just come down to being honest with myself so I went back to Kenny after that two weeks and I said mate I said I'll just be doing a disservice to you if I took the role because I'm not feeling 100% about it and and I don't think in that in that you know it's like in that environment unless you're 100% committed as a player or coach you get found out and that's the last thing I would have wanted because I didn't play that way and so and I was really excited about the funding options sort of a bit of an it almost comes across as a bit of an easy option for players who've got a few games under their belt. They just expect to be, oh, you know, I'll just get a, whether it's a coaching gig or, you know, mm. a, a corporate gig flogging off sponsor packages. There's that yeah. expectation from players. So I think you probably, you know, I think it's quite different for you to actually, because it is, it is a risk as well, isn't it? Like to, to go and pursue your own business. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a real riskier thing to do is, was to, because the business was established but quite young still. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot to do to get it fired up, but um, I'm conv- I'm convinced there is a significant percentage of an ass- of assistant coach out there in the AFL landscape that 
realizes they're not going to make the sort of money they are, you know, 150, 180 uh, in the corporate world, and they feel trapped inside the footy roller coaster because that's their bread and butter, that's what they can do, and they can get paid well, and they're not, they don't have the confidence that that can be replicated in the corporate world, and they become cynical yeah. and bitter yeah. and agitated, and it's like players are there to piss them off, and they lose that sort of passion. Yeah you know, the thing that got them into the, the game in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, look, I was saying, I'll pop, you know, it's, you're probably right there, Beggs, I reckon. Um, and, you know, if, and I'll take my hat off to anyone involved like, in a coaching role because they are, the, the, the hours they commit is, is full on. And I guess the thing that I was a little bit scared of too, of, of going down that path, was the fact that there's two teams in Adelaide. So there's a fair chance if I was going to be a career coach that I would have to move. And I've had some assistant coaches that have lived in four different states in eight years and their kids have been to ten different schools. Now, to me, that I didn't want to... I, I don't know, I just like... I'm, a bit, I'm one of just been having good stability around and, and, I, and I didn't really want to have to do that with the family as well. What about the, what about the mindset shift that goes from you know, being the captain of an AFL club, being a high-profile footballer, to then move away from that and be running a business. It, I always think about how much, you know, we all get wrapped up in our identities. It doesn't matter what we're doing, you know, my identity might be my job or whatever. Footballers are the same, you know, there's something that goes with being an AFL footballer and it's probably not, a lot of, a lot of blokes probably like it, you know, having people say, oh, that person's an AFL footballer, but to walk away from that, not take that coaching gig and to just be like, you know, running a business, was that a, Something that you grappled with in any way, just that, that shift? Not really, nah. I mean, I was, um, I reckon I was just a bit spent with the whole, and, and don't get me wrong, it's such an amazing environment, and I feel so lucky to be a part of it for 15 years, the AFL environment, and live my dream of, as a kid. But I was just, I was actually just really spent with it, to be honest, and um, so it, was a, it became almost a bit of a no-brainer. Now you make the running? In business, you've got to go and find the work and, and, and convert that work. How does your profile, you know, still help you, if at all? Um, I think the profile might help when you are maybe prospecting to go and meet some maybe some referral partners or something like so that. So just explain that, prospecting some referral oh, partners, so what does that typically mean? Might mean like, you know... Um, cold emails or cold No, nah, well, more so like, you know, if you're trying to... You might meet up with like a financial planning company that might look, be looking to source out some finance, you know what I mean? So, um, or, you know, if it's been an email inquiry to the business and, you, and I ring, hey, it's Dom, say, oh, okay, yeah, I'm support, support. It just, the, the, the thing I find is that it's a great icebreaker when you're meeting someone new because most people in Adelaide like their footy one way or another and... Quite often, the first 15 minutes of the conversation is about footy, which I love. And um, it automatically, like, I build a relationship with that person and they feel comfortable before we even start talking about what their finance options are. And that's, deals, and that's with, like, you know, um, mum and dads that are looking to buy a home or a first home buyer to even um, the corporate level where they're buying commercial properties. It's just that icebreaker of being able to talk about footy has been really beneficial. The, but there's been challenges too because when I am, I guess, meeting with people, I think, particularly with the corporate side, um, the commercial side, is that I'm sure in their mind they're thinking, well, 
this guy's only been doing this full time for 12 months like seriously like what does he actually know and and that's fair enough so i've had to build part of that relationship building is credibility like me knowing my me really spending a lot of time on knowing what the banks are doing what it is so that um, I'm confident when I'm talking about it and people see that because that's my biggest challenge. In terms of your brand, you, knowing your stuff, is it the way that you present yourself with the way you look? Is it is it your website? Is it the social media? What other aspects do you do you consciously work on to build that credibility? I think for me, the most important thing is um, knowing my stuff in my head and just talking to it in a genuine conversation, talking about it. I think that's the best thing the way it works, and I and that's what I and I could be wrong in saying that, but for me, um, look, yeah, we've got a website, we can do PowerPoint, all that sort of stuff. But I think it, I don't know, we have all that collateral stuff, but I think you've really got to be able to talk it. Yeah. So your approach to growth in marketing then is based on what you're saying. So it's relationship based. It's you getting out yeah. there, meeting people, um, all that face to face work. Is that sort of what you're focusing on most? Yeah. I mean, it's a mix of everything. It's a mix of it is a mix of everything. Like you know, we we spend on marketing and that sort of stuff. But I still think that the, what the, the the best way to penetrate and be have some substance is still knowing it in my head without brochures and bank material, and then having a genuine discussion with people and working out what they need, and then being able to deliver some options without making it confusing. So that's been my sort of way of trying to get things going. But yeah. Monty's, do you need to um, is it, uh, turn the oh, microwave no. off or something? <laughs> the MacBook's beeping at me. It's very unprofessional. In a, I'm sorry, in a, Don. In an age where bank rates have never been lower, like my instinct is, well, we'll just go ring a bank. Or like, you know, they've got low yeah. rates. What, what do I need a broker for? Yeah, so I guess... Um, and does that play in your favour or does it work against you with interest rates where they're at? Well, at the moment, there's a lot of confusion in the market, which is great for us, great for brokers, because it's... You know, unless you're in it day to day, like, you know, um, the average punter doesn't want to know about it, you know. And, um, I mean, brokers have got 60% of the mortgage market now. Um, they, they pretty much provide 60% of all mortgages are delivered to the banks from brokers. So the, the banks probably prefer that. Well, they love it. I mean, so if you you just got to look at your, your local branch, right? Yeah. Five years ago, there might have been 10, 15 people working in there. Now, there's maybe one or two. You know, nor would the parade where our office is, there's only a couple of people in the branches there because the banks are going, well, funding options are the broking firms. They can have their own costs of this, that and the other and bring the work to us. And it's still cheaper than if we had all, all our so locations exactly open. Exactly right. So they've, yeah, so they've become really broker-focused. Their third-party channel, they call it. They invest so much time and resources on that. And Bank SA recently... I think is closing an X number of stores yeah, yeah, is yeah, another example yeah. they'll I think they're partnering also with um, Australia Post where you can do some of your banking there but it, it, it probably just reinforces yeah. what you're talking about in that you guys take the overheads you take yeah. the fixed costs and yeah. when you deliver some work to a bank they'll they'll and, pay you and I think you know for the consumer like you know everyone is time poor so a broker offers um, convenience because one meeting and you've got like 35 banks at that one meeting pretty much the broker knows what he's what he's doing and is accredited with them all. So you've got convenience, you've got, um, you've got choice, which they deliver all the work, um, and it doesn't cost well, anything. That's the exact benefit 
that I found. So I'm a uh, proud funding options client. Dom looked after me with my car. Classified as cash for comments. Then. Yeah. Do we need to like with the yeah. uh, broadcasting yeah. corporation? Do we need yeah. to register this? Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, but it, you know, it's just the whole fact that it's all taken care of. I'm your classic, your classic client that just can't be stuffed with any of that sort of gear. Yeah. Like I. You know, I'm not the sort of person that's going to call around banks and try and negotiate for the best deal. Like, I'll just go, you know, to be able to call Dom and say, you do that work for me, mate, because I cannot yeah, be bothered. Yeah, and then yeah. let me know when it's all, when you want me to sign something. Yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful thing. Yeah, that, but I'm lazy. Being disorganised works in your favour, but it must <laughs> also make you want to tear your hair out sometimes. Well, if clients are disorganised, yeah. yeah, but I mean, at the end of the day, if they are committed to buying, buying a house, car, whatever, then... Um, once they find a house they like or a car they like, they scramble it pretty quick. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, look, it is a, it is a bit of a battle, but um, but it's good, you know. Well, it's it's great to be able to assist people in a confused market, and just hopefully make it a really seamless process to be able to source the best mortgage. And how do you structure your team? So, what are the components that are required to get your job done? Yeah, so we've got an office manager. Um, full time she is and we're adding someone else in the new year to that role um, and we've got another broker Toby and we're adding another one in, in the new year so as well growing. we're growing yeah um, the the most important part to our business is definitely the the, the office component and I don't want to say back office because they're front office too but you know what I mean like the that's the most time consuming part which you can get really bogged down in as a finance broker when it comes down to the lodging part of the loan to the banks with all the supporting documents and then the correspondence back from the banks about what you're missing, what, what you need to chase up from their account and whatever. You, you can lose a day on one deal and, and that's not productive yeah. uh, as a broker. So our challenge is, is to keep adding in to the office to ensure that we're delivering a... Um, a, you know, a, a quick process for our clients, but also we are always trying to um, improve our process so that, for example, so that when we do submit a loan to a bank, the bank has one touch to approve it, and then it moves on to the settlement team. If you're not, if we're not submitting complete files, then the way it works is we submit a loan today to say Commonwealth Bank, it goes in the line, a credit assessor will pick it up, look at it, oh missing some ID, send an email requesting it, put it on the bottom of the pile, we get the ID back. When that works its way back up again, you lose two days and then you're back again. So you know what I mean? So whereas if we submit clean file, credit says picks it up, everything's here, tick, approve, move it on. So we're really trying to refine all that. And how do you maintain that quality as managing director? Is it a matter of setting high standards and, and, and cracking down when they're not met? Is it a knowledge is it bringing people up to speed in your business about what's required like how do you how do you lead that yeah so i mean the first thing is like every, every bank has different amount of requirements too this is the tricky thing you know like what a and z require for someone who's self-employed is a lot less than every other bank so it's knowing what banks and what they require from the start, starting point um and the office team knowing that but then um we track our you know obviously lodgements to approval time and then our approval to settlement time as well and if that starts blowing out then it's one of two things we're really busy um, and we're understaffed or um, are we not submitting you know how many touch points are there how do you compare your two worlds Dom your footy career versus your now new business career how do you look at them both and say 
you know, do you just look at your footy and you say, oh, geez, life was a lot easier when I was just playing footy. Um, but I, I would then say, you know, the scrutiny that you would have been under playing footy would be intense compared to what you would get now. I mean, how do you compare the two worlds? Um, well, there's just pe- there's equal pressures with both. Like, you know, obviously the physical component is far less. So I'm not waking up sore after doing a loan. <laughs> Don't have to worry about getting subbed out. Yeah, you just got a sort of couple of dumbbells in the backyard. Just keep the just keep just keep the pipes pumped. No, no, no. It's my life, it's my health routine is not sustainable, Jeff. So yeah, I need to tidy that up. But anyway, um, where were, what were we getting at? Yeah, so yeah, two worlds. So there are different stresses. I mean, like obviously the physical component doesn't there's nothing involved physically in what I do now, but um, yeah, there's stress involved, you know, self-employed, you know, if I'm not working, I'm not earning money, which is different to playing footy. Um, and also, um, I'm, I, you'd finish training and you'd drive home, walk in the door and that was it. You know, have a good feed and whatever, rest up. Whereas I get home now and, you know, mine's ticking, like, what's on tomorrow? Like, oh, we've got to present at that. We've got to do this, you know. Roost the radio, got to go, radio. Radio. Gotta go yeah, this. So, and you guys are business owners too. Exactly the same thing, you know. Like you just really don't really stop. Are there are there's transferable skills? Like when you look at the two careers, you on the surface you wouldn't think so. But what yeah. what's come across to your well, business? Can I even focus that in even more? The the self doubt and your ability to deal with that self doubt playing footy and that anxiety about the unknown and and nothing secure. How, how does that play out now for you? Is that have you got some skills now that are to help you deal with this small business mentality? Yeah, like so the same um, the same things that I spoke about in, in my footy career happen now. Yeah, that's right. So, but I guess over time, dealing by being like really try to be really well organised. Um, one thing I try and do is just I try and start each day like a clean day. So if if there's unintended emails and stuff. I make sure they're all done before I go to bed because if it just accumulates day after day, I'll just get and every, everyone's probably I'm not you know, everyone's probably the same, but that's my way of dealing with it. Every day I've just got to start almost you know pretty much fresh, whatever comes in is new sort of thing. Have there been moments where you think is this ever going to work? A little bit, yeah. Well, not ever. Yeah, it wasn't not ever going to work. It was just about how long was it going to take for it the wheels to get going which is you know and, and we've still got a long like we've still got a long way to go but 14 months ago if I had said right this is what the business has done in, the, in that 14 month period I, w- I would t- I probably would have taken it you know even knowing that we've we're not even on a, a blip on the radar in the whole scheme of things but we've made some solid foundations where would you love it to be or where would you like your life to be in about five years um question i don't want us to be the biggest broking firm like but you know i want to say i want our i want our numbers to be big right but i I don't know i don't want to be too big because i don't want to be having too much stress (laughs) you know there's a fine line but i mean yeah there's what i mean whatever i do it's going to be make sure that a life work-life balance um which is really important as you guys know with kids and stuff like that and everyone else that listens as well but I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, I'm just sort of, I've never really taken a five-year approach to things because, like, with footy, it's... Two years. 
Well, yeah, and it could be a game because you could do an injury that ends your career. I love hearing that. I love hearing that because in business, you know, everyone talks about, you know, not everyone, but a lot of people were very much, well, you know, this is my five-year plan and this is exactly yeah. where I want to be in five years. We're like, I don't even know what's happening next yeah. month, to be honest, and, yeah. and I love it. Yeah. It's exciting. You, you almost yeah. leave, you leave yourself open for that unknown mm. for when cool stuff that you could never even plan for in your sort yeah. of box can actually happen. Yeah. yeah, and one of the, if I draw on like, one of my coaches, Kenny Hinckley, who his big thing was, um, you know, you get what you deserve. And, and his big thing was, we've just got to do all the little things really well. Like, don't worry about seven days time or two years, five years time. Just do all the little things well. So every little thing that you have to do today, do them really well and the rest will take care of itself and you'll get what you deserve as long as you're working hard doing those things. So, and doing those little things well is, I think, um, having, an, having a um, well-balanced weekly planner so that you're meeting new people throughout your week, you're dealing with existing clients, and then also you're working on your processes as well. But, and so if one of them are missing, then I've found that we, in July, whether it was middle of winter or not, but June, we were quite busy and my weekly plan was just like survival mode. You know, and I didn't have that meet new people, um, relevant sort of people in the industry, um, uh, talk to some existing key clients continually and and um, work on the process. Didn't do that for like five weeks. Then that part, then all of a sudden it just like stopped. And like July just got thinned out. It almost felt like, like the business was starting fresh again in August. And that, that so. juggle, that structure, is so critical. I think everyone out there would, would be the same. How do you divide your week up then, just in broad strokes? How do you divide yeah. your week up um, and maintain that balance in a week? Can yeah. you give us an insight? Well, generally, um, Monday, Tuesdays, I don't get out of the office much. So, and that's just for Rooster Radio <laughs> and for you boys. So, I don't know, I think because for us, like weekends, obviously properties, there's transactions and stuff. So quite often Monday, Tuesday and the, and the better part of Wednesday are pretty busy. So I try not to sort of have too many um, uh, business growth meeting type things in, until Wednesday afternoon, Thursday, Friday. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Yeah. So it's sort of half and half. half sort of half. Deal, with, deal with stuff Monday, Tuesday, a bit of Wednesday. Yeah. And then maybe look forward and pipeline, yeah. Keep, yeah. keep the potentials bubbling yeah. away. Because yeah. we found that, like, you know, by Friday lunchtime, like, unless something's urgent, I'm not going to ring, I'm not going to do any prospecting because, you know, and I'm not going to send a, an email to a client at three o'clock on a Friday asking for some certain documents. Isn't Friday over all about prospecting when we go to Gaucho's? Well, that's, that's, no, that's, sorry, that is, but I'm talking about... <laughs> he says it with a straight face, you're laughing. <laughs> no, nah, I'm talking about cold calling yeah, or... Yeah. Um, or, you know, harassing clients, oh, mate, I need these documents, unless it's urgent. I need these documents, and it's 3.30 on a Friday, because I guarantee you, they'll look at the email, they won't look at it again, and it won't get action. You have to send a reminder in the following Thursday. So Friday, for me, is more about, yeah, like, going out for lunch, but purpose, not, not just... Do you tell Mayo it's a meeting or lunch? I mix it up. <laughs> You've got to mix it up. But it is meeting lunch. Like, I, oh, I, I just... You're preaching the converted here. And and I and the thing is like you get it's a relate I don't know the big thing in for me is relationship building and I, I, yeah I don't do it every Friday but I reckon it's important at least two Fridays a month they actually 
um, strengthening a relationship or building a new one. And Gauchos is your go-to, is that? Is that yeah, it is a bit of a go-to, yeah. But um, I've known the boys there for a while, so yeah, I could look after them, support the locals. Um, Dom, uh, to begin to conclude, one of the things which has struck me just in this hour or so is how passionate you are about the world of finance broking. I think that can't be manufactured, that can't be uh, false. So all I can say is that I've gained a lot of insight from the world of finance broking, not because of necessarily what you've said, but it's just the passion and the way that you've said it, which is really interesting to me. And it also says to me that you're probably applying you know, the same sort of passion from your footy days into just a different world. So firstly, well done on that. The second thing is, in Adelaide, young people having a crack, uh, part of Rooster Radio is to sort of get around younger guys out having a crack. It's not about doing things perfectly, but we connected a little while ago and it struck me that you were definitely a young, young bloke having a crack. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, you know, it's... Um why not? Why not have a crack? You know, it's, it's, and you know, no guarantees it's going to work out. But you know, life's about having a crack. Do you enjoy risk? Calculated risk. <laughs> <laughs> and Port supporters probably testify that. I used to handball a lot. <laughs> Didn't want to stuff up a kick, and couldn't kick that well. But um, I, I'm not a risky type person. Like even like during the footy days when the share market was going crazy and we come off the track and the boys, like, oh my shit, I'm making this man. And like I'd just be like, oh, well, tell me a bit more about it. Like okay, mate, mate, you put ten grand in that stock. What do they actually do? Oh, I don't know. Who cares? It's going up. <laughs> I'm like, all right, no worries. <laughs> the herd mentality. Is that is that Yeah. So now I'm calculated risk. I'm, yeah. Sometimes I wish I was a little bit more of a bigger risk taker, but um, I don't know. You got a lot. You got to. You got to have a good sleep at night. I think. Um, to begin to. Well, I know I've said that before, but one of the things that I'm going to put you on the spot on is if you're going to hear two people on Rooster Radio that you would find interesting, um, who would those two people be and why? And let's focus on South Australia. Yeah. Oh, give, give us one from SA and just one crazy one because you know. One let, from SA. Yeah, local. You do know most people. I understand that, but. I don't know. Well, maybe who's been perhaps a business influence on you? Because that might be a start for us as we can then go, all right, they were good to Dom, so maybe we should get him on the, yeah, on the um, RR, Rooster well, Radio. Anthony Toop has been a huge in, influence on, on, on me in regards to business and, and yeah, close friends. For those, Toop and Toop Real Estate? Yep, Toop and Toop Real Estate, Anthony Toop, who's started that business up, I guess, 30 years ago to now being the biggest independent real estate agency in, this, in South Australia. Um, and we have a, funding options have a really close alignment with it, with that business, so yeah. Um, yeah, amazing operator. What about just someone that you're a bit fascinated by? Um, I'm a little bit fascinated by the, I can't remember his name. He's a chef at Arana. Jo is it Jocks on Philo or something like that? We can and I've seen him around a lot, and I and I saw some stuff on social media where he might have been even like diving in Lincoln to get some of the, like the scallops and like I, I don't know. And but I think he won, and, and I've never I've actually been there for dinner. That could be one of our lunches there, boys. Is a runner. 
but they've won all these awards and I'm just I just would love to and it's all about um, like Australian cuisine cuisine yeah well I'm gonna I'm I think gonna it's something it. different and I think he's obviously making he's, he's winning awards left right and centre and be, yeah I'd love to hear his take on it all I think that's a good one we um we're going to have to look him up as well as Toopy. Do you reckon Toopy would be happy to come on? You can put in a word for Rooster Radio. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. We'd love to. Well, if I tell him about the gold microphone, he'd be a fan, yeah. I reckon. The gold microphone that's jammed into a crate. Yeah. Um, it's a very professional outfit at the moment. With our, we still haven't finished this painting, Bex. By the way, it's looking. It's coming. It's coming. It's part of the, the feel. But I reckon that uh, that probably wraps us up. Coming up, coming up next is going to be the uh, closer. To the podcast, which was cut up by the uh, Canadian, and you'll hear the um, a pyro, a pyro, yeah, a pyro consulting Andrew Montessi. So enjoy that. I'm not sure how long it's going to last. I might have to get it recut, or maybe we'll just leave it. We'll see how it goes. So thanks for listening, and thanks, Big Dom Cassisi. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to the Rooster Radio Podcast, hosted by Tracks Leadership's James Begley and Apiro Consulting's Andrew Montesi.